y'all. It's Marty. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode of Homemade featuring the hilarious man of the hour, Leslie Jordan. He's got a new book coming out and an album. You're not going to want to miss it. This week, we're sharing an episode of Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living with special guest, three-time James Beard Award-winning semifinalist, Chidi Kumar. Enjoy, and I'll see you back here next week on Homemade. Welcome to another episode of Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living Magazine. We've recorded these episodes as we've all sheltered at home, and between passionate conversations about Southern food, you'll also hear how these cultural icons have been dealing with the pandemic. My guest today has brought a combination of her rich Indian heritage and Southern culinary flair to the vibrant and supportive food culture of Raleigh, North Carolina. They grow a lot of squash and tomatoes and zucchini and turnips and mustard and all of the things that are so identified with the South, but they're also very identified to me by my childhood in India, in Northern India. You may have seen our piece on Chidi Kumar in the September 2019 issue of Southern Living. Born to Indian parents in Pennsylvania, Chidi and her family moved to India when she was just six months old. About eight years later, they relocated back to America. And her mom and dad, both biochemists, worked tirelessly to secure permanent resident status. Chidi's mother lost her own parents in the bloody partition of India as a child. But food eventually became the language that Chidi and her mother shared. Her love for Indian cooking and an attraction to the American South after college sparked Chidi's culinary imagination. Meanwhile, she also became an avid musician, touring and releasing albums throughout the 2000s with her bands The Cherry Valance and Birds of Avalon. As a result, she's often referred to in articles as a rock star chef. Chidi opened the acclaimed restaurant Garland in 2013, serving Asian and Indian dishes with a distinctly Southern twist. Since then, Garland has become a cornerstone of Raleigh's food scene, and Chidi has been a four-time James Beard Awards semifinalist, as well as a finalist here in 2020. On today's show, hear how Chidi discovered the similarities between down-home Southern cooking and the more traditional Indian meals that she grew up with. It was just like, wow, isn't this cool that we all eat the same way? And I can really relate. You know, meat and three is just a thali joint. It's just a little bit different seasoning. So it's pretty cool how much parallel there is. All that and much more on episode eight of Biscuits and Jam. Well, Chidi Kumar, welcome to uh, Biscuits and Jam. Thanks for having me. I believe you grew up in India for the first uh, eight or so years of your life. Tell me, what are some of your strongest memories of of that time? In India, I think most of my memories happened to revolve around food and school. <laughs> I mean, that was pretty much the life. It's funny because the things that you associate as you get older, you're not really sure what was most impactful 
you know, as a kid in the moment, you didn't think that being in the kitchen with your grandmother and boiling milk and making parantas was going to be the thing that you held on to for decades. A lot of people that leave the country that they consider their home and move somewhere else, it's a time capsule and it affects how you remember things. And I think a lot of people don't have that experience until they're older and they leave their parents' house and then they realize all the things that are important. But for me, you know, uh, leaving at eight and a half, like coming to the U.S. and uh, it's not like I was pining for those days so much as the, f the comfort and the uh, security of knowing what tomorrow was going to be like and that the milkman was going to come. And then, you know, in the, in the winter, my parents were going to buy a case of pomegranates from the market and hide it under the bed as though I'm not going to find it. You know, I remember a lot of fruit and I remember a lot of milk. <laughs> and uh, that's so, sort of what it boils down to. I remember I hated um, this turnip curry that my mom used to make. I would kill to have it now, but I remember a lot of food things. And then I also remember like sitting with my head in the speaker, listening to the Beatles yesterday and today, like repetition <laughs> and, and staring at that album cover. <laughs> So tell me a little bit about your mom's cooking. She seems to have been a big influence on you. And it sounds like you got a pretty early start in terms of your interest in food and cooking. Yeah, my mom had also a very fractured childhood, much more traumatic than mine. She was a child in what is now Pakistan and her family was Hindu or is Hindu. And so they were basically forced to leave. And so she lost her parents and her brother in that migration. Um, a couple of million people died actually in the space of about a year in that transfer. This is during the partition. This is the partition. Yeah. 1947. So the thing that she held on to also was food memories. And I think that was like the language that she had to connect to her mother and to her childhood. And those times were all wrapped around the village square or the town square had a, a grain mill and, you know, a tandoor oven and the aunties that would teach her certain things and the Muslim aunties that would teach her other things. And so the food ritual was so much a part of what she recalled of her childhood. I think the thing that she knew how to impart was food memory and food uh, culture. When we moved to the U.S., I think she wasn't really trying to keep us isolated in this Indian bubble. She knew that her young kids were going to become American. But the food part was the thing that I think she chose was this sort of innocuous ambassador of our culture into our soul. So even though there were times when we were like, can we just please have spaghetti and pizza like normal people? And we did do that sometimes, but she would have to make it in her own way. So, you know, uh, <laughs> but it was like this language. And I think cooking provided a time to meditate and connect with her own mother and then pass that memory unspoken on because there was so much trauma in it, you know, um, that I think it was it was a cloak of passage, I guess, you know, uh, that that was seemingly very innocuous and gentle and flavorful, but still really patient and deliberate. What were some of those first dishes that really sparked something for you as a cook? 
that didn't happen till we moved to America. In India, I took uh, the privilege of helping as just like something I got to do because I was too young to actually do it. So it was like, oh, Bobby, my grandmother, let me, you know, put a paranta on the on the skillet. When we moved to America, my tasks became a lot more uh, required um, to help, like help my mom. She was working. So I, I, I always go to Rajma, the, the red bean recipe that I've talked about before. And that was in the Southern Living article too. But that was the one thing that like I didn't realize its importance until we moved to America. And I didn't realize how much I loved it. My mom loved to make it. She had a story of her childhood revolving around it. She was, she was pretty destroyed when we moved here. She was going through, I think, what is probably PTSD of being displaced again. She was severely depressed and it was like a way of me kind of reaching her. She made something that she loves to make and I loved to eat. So it was this connection that I could have with her. Um, I was just trying to make her happy, you know. Um, but then, you know, the, the things like just homestyle chicken curry with a bone, keema. We didn't ever have very elaborate things, not for a long time. Um, I mean, she couldn't even source ingredients for a really long time. So we had to get ground beef or uh dried beans that were not particularly Indian, maybe pink lentils, something that you could just find in a normal grocery store. And it wasn't until much later that they were able to figure out, you know, if you go to Flushing, you can go to this grocery store and get the spices and get, you know, particular kinds of flowers. But my mom worked a lot. So it wasn't like she was full of this uh, leisurely time to like explore fermentation or anything, you know. When coming back to America, Chidi's family lived in New York first, and after graduating from the University of Massachusetts with a degree in psychology, she began to set her sights on the South. When I told my parents I was moving to Raleigh, they were like, oh, no, you're, you're going to live in the South? And even though they were living in Miami at that time, you know, <laughs> that's not the South. But it, there was this thing that, I don't know, connected me with this place when I came to visit on spring break. Yeah, I came to Raleigh on spring break. <laughs> Didn't make it to Daytona. But there was just like this feeling here. It felt really familiar in my subconscious. I mean, it was cheap and easy to live here. The weather was beautiful. I came like this time of year. It's just, it's a, it's a lovely place. I really thought that I would stay here for like a year or two and figure it out. But then it just start, like started revealing itself. There was music, yes. And there was a this really great spirit of independent DIY kind of attitude. There wasn't very much like independent business ownership or entrepreneurship quite yet. But it felt like People here were like, well, if there's not a real club, we'll just have a show in this warehouse or at this house party. There was this unstoppableness about it. That's a great word. <laughs> <laughs> it could be German. It's not a real English word. Right? <laughs> you know, the farmer's market was like right there. Um, and I always talk about it and I can't overstress the importance of that state farmer's market. It's just big and humble. And it's an emblem of how much agriculture is a part of the fabric of of the South and particularly here. A lot of the farmers are from a little further east. So eastern North Carolina in between here and the coast is like 
you know, where they grew a lot of cotton and tobacco and um, they still raise a lot of hogs and turkeys and chickens, but they grow a lot of squash and tomatoes and zucchini and turnips and mustard, all of the things that are so identified with the South, but they're also very identified to me by my childhood in India, in northern India. So like all of those things would come around a couple of months earlier than they do here, but it was the same kind of seasonality that was in our home. I wonder if uh, if you started to see a, a real connection between Indian food and southern food. Was that something that, that started to kind of spark an interest for you? Um, it did in a way, like I would have these dinner parties. And so like New Year's Day, I would make my mom's black eyed pea recipe and I would stir fry collard greens like a subzi, you know, just like a regular Indian side dish. I guess I wasn't thinking too hard about the fact that it was a thing. It was just like, I can get this stuff and I know how to cook it this way. And it's delicious. And I, you know, didn't really think about it so much in terms of wow, isn't this a new concept for a restaurant? It was just like, isn't this cool that we all eat the same way? And I can really relate. You know, meat and three is just a thali joint. So, I mean, we have those and it's just the same, same here. It's just a little bit different seasoning. And some of the vegetables, is there some, I mean, like okra and things like that? Okra, eggplant. Tomatoes, turnips, uh, turnip greens, mustard greens. We don't have collards so much because they need to be kissed by the frost. But mustard is a huge part of Indian food. Um, and corn and cornmeal, cornbread, uh, wheat. I mean, sugar is from India. Uh, tea, green garbanzos. I see them now in the farmer's market. And I guess, I don't know if that was ever eaten here, but I bet if you dig back further than 200 years ago, you'd probably find that, you know, somebody was growing that here. It's great for the soil as a as a recharge. Chandigarh, where I lived in India, is not that far from the mountains. So geography-wise, topography-wise, it's also like we're not that far from the mountains here in Raleigh. We don't grow that many apples in Raleigh. We get our apples from the mountains. And so we, so did we when we were, we were our, our apples came from Kashmir when we were in Punjab. So it, it's pretty cool how, how much parallel there is. So, Chidi, tell me about your kind of journey to opening Garland. Um, when did that start to become a concept and then a reality? The concept was long-lived in my head, in my naive imagination. I had these dinner parties that we just talked about, and then I started playing music and um, started touring, like, heavily. We would play all over the country and, and Europe and, like, kind of, get a vibe on every place and like what cool restaurants are popping up in in little towns and big cities in, in America. And then like, oh, isn't it amazing how they eat in the Basque country? Like everybody in Spain is just out all the time and they're not all bogged down by all this fancy stuff. They're just eating. They're walking around and eating and Everything is delicious. Like everything is delicious. And it's not um, something that is for the privileged. It's just for everybody to 
you know, it's a source of pride that you're going to express your way, yourself by your food and why would you not do it the absolute best way you possibly can. So that that spirit was really inspiring. And then, you know, I'd come home and Raleigh would like grow a little bit and then they'd still be like, eh, I still can't get a good cocktail anywhere. So my husband, we weren't married at the time, but he and two other friends had opened a music venue. It was part of this thing like, you know, other places have these places that we go and play that are run by people in bands or people that get this kind of music or this like spirit. Meanwhile, here in Raleigh, our music venues are run by these good old boys that like think that we're weird and think that we're dumb and think that they can like rip us off when we know we had a sold out show and they give us 50 bucks and it's like oh you don't know what the expenses are it's like well yeah I do um anyway so you know that was like a the first step is to open the, the venue learn how to you know run a bar and that building got torn down uh, as part of Raleigh's growth. Um, they were building a convention center. So we it took us like three years and we were trying to find a place to have the venue for, foremost and then have a, a bar attached and a little eatery, tiny little thing. And I just wanted a food truck that didn't go anywhere. It's really all I wanted. But it's just hard to find a spot. We didn't really have any money. And the lease that we got had... Um, all three, but it's there were all three very distinct 3,000 square foot places that were, yes, they were built out, but they all had to operate individually. And so I um, I got a restaurant that I then had to learn how to own and operate. So it's like you backed into the restaurant a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely did. Well, I was terrified. I was paralyzed with fear, but I think that if I'd really understood it, I'm not sure if I would have done it. And if I had, I would have definitely done some things differently. Well, it's obviously worked out pretty well. But tell me, with Garland, when was it that you started to realize that you guys were really on to something? It took probably two to three years. You know, I started to travel a little bit and um, the Beard nomination definitely like helped my own validation for myself, which is so lame that something like that is what I needed, but it did help. And I can't lie about that. It, it's it's a collection of things. It's a collection of getting better at what you do, understanding like how, how to be an employer and a boss and mentorship, like what that means, getting smarter at how you cook and how you represent your menu, how you craft your menu, not being afraid to take things off and change things around just having some sort of mutual faith uh, between yourself and your staff, giving them some power, like all of those things, like they all kind of have to happen in this sort of majestic dance. And it just takes a while to learn that it's really hard to have any of what I just mentioned. If you're terrified of losing everything, every moment of every day, that's the hard part. Well, you guys really created something special, that's for sure. I want to ask you about the kind of community aspect of it, because I've, I've heard you talk about how that was really important to you, and you wanted to kind of create this sense of community. You wanted the restaurant to be part of the community. Tell me about that. Well, you know, that was also an evolving thing. I would always hear people talk about community, 
before the restaurant. I mean, I felt it with Kings with the music venue, but it was that's so social, you know, and sometimes it's really hard for me to be social and go out and hang out. I get recharged by alone time and by cooking. The restaurant gave me this ability to be a part of a conversation without actually having to spend social uh, effort. You know what I mean? I could express myself in the kitchen and it would affect somebody in the dining room and I didn't have to go talk to them about it. It was a nonverbal conversation. And as the months and the years went along, I felt like people started to get it. Initially, there was a lot of backlash, especially among like our Indian guests. Um, we had the the worst reviews from from people who were Indian. Really? Oh, brutal. <laughs> so mean, ruthless. Like, yeah, uh, that's a that's a whole another conversation. <laughs> but but then there were people who were just like they were travelers or people who were doing cool things with their paintbrush or clay, and they got it in a way that. I didn't realize that anybody would. So that was that one kind of community. And then this town, especially in the Triangle area, we do a lot of fundraising. We do a lot of charitable work among the chef community. And that, I didn't understand the impact and the value of that until, you know, started kind of getting invited or getting involved in those things. And you know, initially it's just like, oh my God, we got to do 500 bites. Like, how am I going to do that? You know, I've got an expo all day and all night or whatever. But then when you go through that and you are in this room, maybe in a garage or maybe in a field with 30 or 12 other chefs, you get what you're doing. You get why you're doing it and you learn from each other. And at, at the end of the day, here at least, it's not competitive. We're all kind of like in the same boat. Sometimes that boat really sucks, but we're all in it together. And there is that sense that I'll show you my scar if you'll show me, you know, if, if you'll show me yours. Um, there, there were a lot of conversations that happened in those moments that were about our fears, our vulnerabilities, very big questions and sometimes really detailed questions. I never felt a sense of community like that before. I never had friends that were so um, deep in a way. Because it's not just creative. It's like when you own a restaurant, you own a business, you put so much of yourself into it. So when you're talking about it, you're kind of revealing the deepest parts of yourself. And nobody knows everything, you know. There's always something to learn. And that's been like this the humility in that and the sharing of the of those vulnerable moments has been like the most fruitful and fulfilling part of what what we do. And it's a credit to the way everybody is around here um, and in the chef world in general, but I can only speak for my own town. Well, there's the community of chefs and everyone in the restaurant business in Raleigh, but then you've also tapped into this community of, of Indian American chefs all over the South, Asha Gomez and um, Marijuana Rani and people like that. I'm just wondering what that experience was like. Uh, you guys did a series, Brown in the South, a dinner series a few years ago. What it was like, uh, you know, getting to know them better and spending time with them. That was a surprise. I wasn't anticipating the impact that would have on my personal life and my culinary 
world. It was supposed to be one dinner, and it was uh, formed by Marijuana Rani and Vishwesh Bhatt from uh, Oxford, Mississippi. And we were just going to have this dinner and talk about the meat and three and, and the thali and just sort of go, what's the difference? I can't tell them apart. You know, who wore it best kind of thing. It was such a valuable, like magical day. This was camaraderie in a DNA sense, almost like we didn't have to explain what we were doing. It was just like this basic language. And all of us don't speak the same language from India. We're all from different parts. And India's got notoriously way too many languages for its own good. But we had this way about us that we could recognize, almost like long lost twins that are separated at birth. And you come together and you're like, yeah, you laugh like me, you know. We all do things differently and we all have a different perspective. But there's a connection there that I never felt with, you know, in quite the same way with other people. And it also really educated me on Indian food. So that was really exciting to me. It kind of made me want to dig into the country I come from more. And that was that was really inspiring. We've got more with Chidi Kumar after the break. everyone, I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living and host of Biscuits and Jam. Since 2020, I've been interviewing musicians, chefs, authors, and other Southern icons about their family traditions, their faith, their favorite meals, and of course, what it means to be Southern. And I'm excited to announce Season 5 of our award-winning podcast. Join me every Tuesday for new conversations with some of the most interesting and influential Southerners around. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam where Wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam. Welcome back to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, and we're talking with renowned North Carolina chef Chidi Kumar. I want to turn to this current crisis that, that we're all living through. You know, this is early April when we're recording this and we're almost a, a month into a lot of the stay-at-home orders and, and the closed restaurants and everything. And how are you weathering this storm and this community that you've created? Has that been a help in terms of, you know, kind of getting through this? I was not prepared for this. Um, I don't think anybody was, but I, I, I really don't feel psychologically equipped to handle this sometimes. Um, I was just getting the hang of doing this restaurant thing, <laughs> just getting good at it. <laughs> um, it's interesting to me. I look back over the last, like, what well, it's been about three weeks and change. Uh, three weeks, I think, since we, March 16th is when we closed. Our order came on St. Patrick's Day. That's the day that we laid off via phone conversations to each and every one of our staff members. Um, words that I never anticipated having to say um, at this point in time, five years ago, maybe, but like we're going to have to temporarily furlough everyone. Um, here's how you file for unemployment. I didn't, I didn't know that I could, that I would ever have to do that. Um, and the community part of it has been 
the only saving grace. But then like the Independent Restaurant Coalition has formed in the last, you know, two weeks and them just really realizing how little power we have to save our own livelihood and to save the livelihood of the people that we promise a job to and an existence, you know, a, a way of making a living. Um, and that would be one thing if it was something that we had done to deserve it, but it just kind of happened to us. We're in the middle of this perfect storm and, you know, none of what I'm saying is like a re revelation or anything, but I can't visualize how getting things back to where they were before, how do, I don't see how that's going to go. There are so many unanswered questions and mostly they have to do with time and time becomes a financial issue when you have no money coming in. I don't know what business is going to be like when we can finally open our dining room in a real way. Is social culture ever going to be the same? Is there going to be a relapse? Like all of these things are questions that appear on the ceiling when I'm trying to sleep at night. You know, it's just, it's really terrifying. Have there been any um, positives for you in this, Chidi, of like uh, music? Have you been able to, to write music or play music as an outlet? A little bit. The creative juices kind of aren't really flowing right now. Uh, we've, we've played a couple of times, but it's just more like uh, it's not a destination playing. It's just like making sounds and getting out of our head. It's been amazing to be outside and to get the opportunity to go on long walks and like hit a tennis ball against the wall and download a yoga app. The things about self-care and eating at home have been have been really great and I'm I'm not going to discount that but it certainly doesn't feel like a vacation or anything like that in the best moments I think let's try to see this as an opportunity to like reinvent recharge reinvigorate really have the objectivity to figure out what what you want to keep and what you want to you know get rid of maybe it's spring cleaning in a large sense but I think the anxiety really is such an obstacle. And that's also very revelatory, you know, how much stress really affects your ability to function as a happy and creative human being. Well, so Chidi, was there sort of one thing that you are most looking forward to when all this is over? I just keep picturing a busy service and being in the kitchen, uh, walking out and seeing the bar full and people having an array of plates in front of them and a second cocktail on the way, the energy in that room, the smiles on the faces and the little challenges, the little daily things that are solvable. That's what I'm looking forward to solving problems again. I don't feel like I got anything done today or any day. All these days just run together and they're just like refreshing the North Carolina Employment Security Commission site, you know, over and over. It's just like, I don't like this job at all. And I really miss my old job. <laughs> well, if nothing else, you joined us on this podcast. So thank you so much for doing that. It was great to have you on. Thank you for having me. Thanks for the conversation. It really felt good to connect back to that. It was awesome. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Chidi Kumar. In the weeks since we spoke, 
Garland has been offering heat and eat meal kits for curbside pickup, and they're working on an alfresco dining plan. Visit garlandraleigh.com for more information. You can also search for the Cherry Valance and Birds of Avalon wherever you get digital music. Southern Living is based in Birmingham, Alabama, and this podcast was produced and edited in Nashville, Tennessee. If you like what you hear, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or telling your friends about the program. You can find us online at southernliving.com and subscribe to our print publication by searching for Southern Living at www.magazine.store. Biscuits and Jam is produced by Heather Morgan Schott, Chrissy Tiglius, and me, Sid Evans, for Southern Living. Thanks also to Ann Kane, Jim Hankey, Eliza Lambert, and Rachel King at Pod People. I'll see you back here next week for more Biscuits and Jam.